0: Well, good morning. Uh, as Abby said earlier, of course, go Wolfpack. I mean, that's, that's the only thing that matters today. Um, hey, I'm really excited to be here with you. Uh, I'm sure all of you can relate to a time in your life where maybe you discovered something for the first time or you figured something out and you realized, man, this is awesome. Why did nobody tell me this sooner? Right? You ever been there where you figured something out or you bought something or whatever and everyone's like, this is amazing. It's like, why well, didn't nobody really tell me this beforehand? I would have. I wish I would have done this you know, before now. Uh, this happened to me about a month or so ago. I bought a new Blackstone Grill Griddle, which is just like a, a flat top grill. It's kind of like uh, if you go to like a hibachi place and they cook in front of you, that sort of thing, although you can obviously make a lot of things with it. I was getting annoyed because the grill that I had, I always had to clean it. There was like grease all the time. And, and I, I had heard two friends mention that they got this Blackstone and I'm not a cooker or a grill. Like, I kind of do it every once in a while because you have to, but I never, like, I'm always nervous, and whenever we had people over, I'm like, you know, did I cook this enough? Are we going to die? I have no idea. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to figure this thing out. So I bunch, watched a bunch of YouTube videos, and so much so that my uh, four-year-old son, Roman, wanted to know when, we, when he could watch his grill videos again because he was all into, like, watching them do these things. So I, I bought it, and I posted it on Instagram. I was, like, really excited, and I had multiple people, friends, and people say, this is awesome. It'll change your life. And I'm like... How does everybody have this thing? And nobody tell me about this beforehand. But apparently, if you have one, it's amazing. So I got it. And it is awesome. Like, I've been learning some stuff. I have, uh, this past Friday night, we made, I made Taco Bell Crunchwrap Supremes. Can I get an amen? Right? And it was, like, the first thing that, like, was actually okay that I made. So I'm learning and I'm growing. And uh, I say that, like, it's been a lot of fun. And I I was thinking about this this week. I was like, man, if I had to just learn this, like, two years ago. Like, who knows where I would be right now? I'd get I my chef hat and I got a four star, you know, all this sort of thing, right? But I was like, man, this is like a lot of fun. I wish I had learned this sooner or somebody who apparently loves these things. Uh, the people come out of the works, like, why did nobody tell me, right? And I share that because today we're going to uh, continue our story through the gospel of Mark. And Jesus is going to be um, asked a question or somewhat confronted by another man. Uh, and Jesus is going to give him an answer about how to experience life in God's kingdom And it may not be what he wants to hear. However, if he were to abide by it and listen to it, uh, he would find it was greater than he could ever have Imagined, and so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, so you go, can go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones out and turn there. And if, if you don't own a Bible, rather, uh, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. But if you would like to read along with us, we'll be on page 897. We have been in the Gospel of Mark for a little while now, going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, which is a which is pretty, pretty much uh, one of the books in the Bible that's all about Jesus and his life and what he did. And so these last couple of weeks and today as well, we're Going to see Jesus be confronted by people or asked questions by disciples, religious leaders, various people. And he's been doing some teaching, and that is what he's going to continue with today. And so, last week, if you were here, he was confronted by the religious leaders. And so, Jesus explained to them the purpose or the intent of marriage, and he also talked about divorce. And today, he's going to be confronted and asked another question. But before we get there, we'll start in verse 13 of Mark chapter 10. Here's what it says It says, People were bringing little children to him, that's Jesus in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. So the disciples rebuked the children. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, to his disciples, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Now, I just want to point out real quick, I know in our culture today, it seems kind of weird to bring kids, that Jesus would touch him. What, what, basically, what's happening there is in an ancient culture, there was this idea or these beliefs that a ruler or someone who had a lot of political influence or a general or a highly respected religious leader, if you could just touch them or if they could touch you, you would be blessed and you would experience maybe some of the, the goodness that is in their life. Now, of course, that's not really true other than Jesus is saying this is literally true. Um, and as, a, as, as an advanced society as we might think we are compared to people around 2000 years ago, all the time, and you may be one of those people who touched a celebrity or someone that you really liked, and you're like, I'm never gonna wash this hand again, right? That, like, that's what's going on there. Like, touch my child, bless the child. But the problem was in the ancient world, children were viewed much differently than they were today. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the children first came up, um, but it's a lot different. So, like, today, uh, kid, children, if you wanna have kids, it's more so how many can I actually afford to have, <laughs> right? Back then, it was how many could I afford not to have. Right in a world where survival was key, it was largely agricultural. Uh, human labor was a was a commodity. You would need children to help your family survive, uh, for legacy, for all these sorts of things. And so, it's not at all to say that parents didn't love their kids. Absolutely, they loved their kids. But the cultural view of children was much different than today. Uh, They existed to help the the family uh, survive and continue. Uh, There was no after school uh, child care programs. Uh, There's no youth sports. There's none of these things. These kids exist to help the family and society. In other words, they had no honor, they had no rank. They were just there. Of course, they were loved of course, but how they were viewed was different. And so all that to say, what's happening here is that the children are essentially a distraction. The disciples see the children as a distraction from stopping Jesus to teach and to uh, be with the people, the adults, the crowd, to teach them about his kingdom and all those various things. And so they want to get the kids out of there so Jesus can get to his more important work with more important people. That's what's going on here. Now, in this passage, Jesus blesses them. It's worth noting that they are not blessed for their innocence or any sort of inherent virtue that children have. The blessing here is that the kids come to Jesus as small and powerless. Uh, They have no, uh, again, no honor. They have nothing to offer him. Uh, They are overlooked in the order of importance of society, but yet to receive the kingdom of God like a child is to receive it as someone who doesn't deserve it, who cannot earn it or cannot offer anything in return, right? They can only accept it as a gift. And that is in contrast with the man that Jesus is about to talk to. And so here's what happens next, verse 17 of chapter 10. It says, as he, this is Jesus here, of course, his disciples and people were coming with him. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So a man comes up, as Mark is going to tell us in a second, he's very wealthy. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew also includes this story, and uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he is a young man, and the Gospel of Luke also talks about this account in his Gospel, and he tells us that this man is a ruler, or he's an authority figure, he has some sway politically in his community or in his town, and so what you have here is a young man who is affluent and important. I mean, this is the American dream of what's happening here, of who comes to Jesus. He has everything. But he's clearly worried about something, right? He wants to ensure that he will have eternal life in God's kingdom. And so what must I do to make sure that happens to me? That's his question. then it says this in verse 18. Here is Jesus' response. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might have maybe thought this exchange was curious or interesting if you ever read this before, because it's like, well, if Jesus is God who has come, why would Jesus then ask the man, why would you call me good if, God, if only God alone is good, if Jesus is supposed to be God? Like, it seems like Jesus is saying, don't call me that because I'm not good. Like, why would he do that? Well, to understand what's happening here is, to, is it's helpful to know the context of what's going on. Uh, basically, in ancient Judaism, uh, only God was characteristically called good. It's not much different than today. Like, we, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say God is the only one who is truly good and truly perfect and truly holy. So, it's not that other people couldn't be good or or people couldn't do good works or anything like that. But in terms of whenever you got into religious conversations or you talked about God, it was very clear. That God is the only one who is truly good. And so what would happen is that ancient rabbis, Jewish teachers, would be uh, referred to as a number by a number of different titles. But they would be rarely, if ever, referred to as a good teacher for fear of blasphemy. Because only God is good. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging this man who has come up to him and asking him, why do you call me that? If you think I'm a typical good rabbi or a good teacher, why would you call me good if I'm just, maybe I'm a little bit more special in your mind than other people, but you obviously aren't gonna think I'm God because no one really did at this point. They didn't really believe him. So why would you call me good? Now, to be clear, again, Jesus is not saying he isn't good. But again, he's questioning this man why, who you think I'm a normal rabbi. Why am I good to you? So right away, Jesus is setting this up that he's challenging or he's going to challenge what this man thinks about goodness and badness, right? If no one is good but God, then this man still lacks something no matter how much good he may do. And that's important because of what happens next. Here's what it says, verse 19. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he continues. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, so the young ruler responds to Jesus, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. So it seems like we're off to a good track. So what Jesus is doing here is he's referencing essentially some of the Ten Commandments to this man that all faithful Jews would obey in order to honor God and to love people well. To live honorable lives, you would uh, want to honor the Jewish law, and most particularly the Ten Commandments. And the man says, he has done these things, indicating that I must be in good standing. What I'm doing means that I will inherit eternal life. Because again, he is so focused on what he must do. That was the original question in verse 17. Jesus gives him a list of things. He references the law. The guy's like, well, I'm doing that. So I must be good to go. But then Jesus says this at verse 21. In verse 21. So in response to the man saying, I have done these things, he says this. Looking at him, Jesus Loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, I, as, as a side note, I think it's just worth pointing out here that Jesus does seem to grant that this man has let, li, uh, lived a good life. Right? He grants this, this guy has followed, uh, followed the law. He's not arguing it with him. And the man here, it does seem that he is also not trying to be arrogant. He's genuinely asking, what must, what must I do? And he's saying, well, I am doing these things, and so I guess I must be good to go. So he's not trying to be arrogant here. But then Jesus looks, with it, look at, looks at him with love, with compassion. So again, you don't have uh, Jesus here who is mocking, who is trying to condemn, but out of love and tenderness and care for this man, he shows to him, he reveals to him that he is still missing something else that no matter what this man has done, it's not about him. Now, the irony here, again, coupled with the previous passage that we read in the beginning about the children having nothing, the irony here is that we are told children who have nothing, that that if you accept Jesus like that, the kingdom of God is yours. Yet the man who has everything, both money and deeds, still lacks something. What he is saying here is that only when this man who has everything becomes like a child and has nothing, will he then possess everything, right? This idea that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom, right? What he's telling this man is that you must become fully dependent on me and the kingdom of God will be yours. And this reminds me of the question that we ask next week. We'll be asking those that are getting baptized. One of the questions that we ask them uh, is that, are you willing to do whatever Jesus asks you to do and go wherever Jesus asks you to go? And as we read this passage, it makes me think that this is a good question for us to ask. If we are a follower of Jesus this morning, right? Am I willing to go wherever Jesus asks me to go and do whatever he asks me to do? That's the question for us. Now, here's what I know, right? Me personally, from experience, talking to people, here's what I know. Um, We like to think that if God explicitly told us something, we would do it. Have you ever been in that situation, God, just tell me what to do, good or bad, I will do it. There's so many times in my life, in your life, have you been following Jesus for any length of time, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you've wondered if God is out there, you've probably asked that question, God, tell me exactly what to do, and I would do it. The question is, would you actually do it? It was interesting, I, was, I saw this clip this week online from Jackie Hill Perry, she's a, uh, an author and a Christian teacher, and she was in this interview with this other woman, and she was telling this woman about a question that she got recently, and someone was asking, like, why in this day and age does everybody talk about the universe so much? Like, wh- what does the universe want me to do, or trust in the universe? Like, why does the universe seem to replace God? And she said, the answer to that is because the universe won't ask you to die to yourself, take off your cross, and follow me. Uh, the universe, like any idol in our life, oh, wouldn't you know, happens to already agree with everything you agree with. It happens to believe with everything that you believe. It will not challenge you. It will not ask you to do anything you don't already want to do. That's why the universe is so attractive, right? Because the universe is not going to ask us to lay down our life For the good of others. It's not going to challenge us. It is not going to make us feel uncomfortable the way Jesus is challenging this man in this text. And so, again, I think many of us would think that, God, if you tell me exactly what to do, I'll just do it because I know from you. But yet, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, there, there might be a good chance that at some point in your walk with Jesus, you have felt maybe not explicitly audibly told, but you have felt that God is leading you to do something. But then you find a lot of reasons, right, to ignore it. Um, or to say, well, yeah, maybe that was from the Lord, but I don't know because that seems uncomfortable, so I'm not sure I want to do it. Like, it, here's what it makes me think. I've got kids. If you've got kids, you've experienced this. If you don't have kids, you've been a kid, so you know how this works. There are times when my children, seven and four, come up to me and say, Dad, we're bored. And they literally, verbatim, they'll say, Can we do anything? Is there anything we can do? Now you learn very quickly that they don't actually mean that. They don't actually mean, can I do anything? What they mean is, can you tell me or can you do something that I already wanna do? Can you say I can watch a show, uh, that we can go ride bikes, that we can go to the park, that you'll play with me? They don't actually want anything. Because you say, well, yeah, uh, you want to sweep the floors. Uh, Yeah, there's some chores. All of a sudden, well, not not anything. Like it's it's only the things that I already kind of wanted you to do, and hoping that you said I could do them. Where they don't actually want to do anything. Because if you challenge them or make them do something they don't want to do, all of a sudden being bored sounds really good, (laughs) right? And that's what can happen here. That this man, listen, probably from a genuine place of wanting to do what God would ask him to do, what Jesus would ask him to do, in order to experience God's kingdom. But yet he gets told something that's really in, uh, really uncomfortable. And then he starts to think, "Well, maybe your kingdom isn't worth it after all. Am I willing to go wherever Jesus asked me to go and do whatever Jesus asked me to do? That's the question, that's the challenge, rather, that Jesus is giving this rich young man. And so here's his response, verse 22. Here's the man's response. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions, right? And so what we see here is in reversal from the previous confidence in verse 17 and in verse 20, where he was like, yes, what should I do? I'm doing these good things. I feel like I'm in a good spot. Now he is challenged by Jesus that as long as he stands on his own merits and what he can do in and of himself, he won't experience the kingdom. And hear me, this is a good guy. This, generally speaking, this is a good guy. If we knew him, we would probably say, yeah, he deserves to go to heaven, But if we would use modern language, because of all the nice stuff that he does. Unlike a lot of people with wealth and influence, he actually cares for people. He's a good guy. But it says this man was dismayed. Now, this is from the Greek word stignosian, which means shocked or appalled or dismayed. This is not just like, oh, man, that's really hard. I, nah, that's really... St-. This is... You want me to do what? I have to do what? He, he literally probably thought in his mind, I can't. It's not just that I just don't want to. He's probably thinking, like, I can't do that. And again, if you take into account the whole of this man's life, it's a good reminder for us of what Jesus is doing here. And that is that good works in one area of our life do not cover unfaithfulness in other areas. And we are so inclined to do this. Well, I'm, I'm faithful, and I honor God, and I do things here, so then justify, it's okay if I do things here, because these other areas are good. Now, again, this man didn't necessarily know he was being unfaithful necessarily, but once it was revealed to him, he no longer wanted to change his course of action, right? Right? And we can do the same thing in our lives, with our work, or with our money, or with forgiving people, or with being graceful for other people. Like, we can go, we can live our lives, and we can do lots of things. We think we're good, and so therefore, we think it's okay if we bend the rules, or if we slack off, or if we do some of our own selfish things here, because we're good everywhere else, right? This man has been revealed, you are a great guy, but I want your whole life, and he is not willing to do it. It's a reminder for us that you and I are not graded on some sort of scale or some sort of curve, rather. That as long as you do enough stuff, then you are good. That in order to actually receive the life that Jesus offers, you must trust him with everything. Not the things that you're only comfortable, you're already comfortable trusting him with. That you must give him and submit to him everywhere. Which again, this is a good question for us to think and consider knowing this text in our own life, right? What areas of your life Are you willfully not trusting Jesus or not following Jesus in? Willfully. So I'm not, this isn't like, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do in this situation. So I'm hoping I'm making the right decision, but I don't actually know. This is like, no, listen, I know. That God is clear, that scripture is clear, that the people that he has placed in my life have advised me and I am rejecting it for any number of reasons that I might want to do. So I'm not talking about unknowingly doing wrong. I'm talking about like this man. It has been revealed to him that if he really wants to experience the kingdom, this is what he must do in order to experience the life that God wants for him. That's the issue with what is going on here with this man. That it has been revealed to him what steps of faithfulness he needs to take and he rejects it. So in your life, again, I'm not talking about, oh, I need to know the Bible more. Like, you, Here's what I found. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know, right? Like, if we're being honest, we know. We know the areas that we have decided to go our own way or the, or the areas that we have justified or the areas that we're struggling but we're not telling anybody because we think we can do it on our own. And so we're missing out on the love and grace that God would have for us. right? Where are you, uh, you not willfully following Jesus? In your finances, Are you being generous in ways that you know you could be? Are you not being generous, rather, in ways you know that you could be? Uh, In your job, are you cutting corners? Are you slacking off? Are you kind of bending the rules in certain areas to hit that bonus because you know that you can get away with it? Um, Are you not loving and serving and caring for your spouse the way that you know that you should? I'm not saying, like, you have to have all these tricks and do all these things, but like, would you say, yeah, I'm being faithful or not? Uh, Am I trusting God? Am Am I asking him genuinely, God, what would you want me to do with my life? Or what would you want me to do in this situation? What areas of your life are you willfully not following Jesus? And how are you going to respond? Because we see how this man has responded. Now, this is shocking, however, not just to the man, but also to the disciples. Because here's what happens next, verse 23 of chapter 10. So after this event, maybe later that day, we're not told exactly when, but it says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you might be wondering, why are the disciples also shocked at this exchange? Well, here's, they thought in the ancient culture, and if we're honest, we can still think the same thing today, but the assumption was the more wealthy, the more uh, more stuff you have, the more blessed materially you are in life the harder it is to see how much you are lacking, right? And we know this to be true for us, too. Like, the more stuff you have, the less you have to rely on others or the Lord or anything else. You can have this false sense of, I've got everything figured out. Now, it's not that money is bad in and of itself. Uh, We have other examples where Jesus talks to people who are rich and who are wealthy, and he does not tell them to sell everything that they have. But in this example, or in this, the issue, rather, the issue can be true for all of us. That no matter your level of income or what you have, we all know what it's like to be uh, entrapped by money, to put our trust in money, uh, to feel like if we've got enough stuff, then we're good because we trust in money and those things rather than the Lord. And so the issue here is that Jesus says that it's actually easier for a camel, which was essentially the largest animal in Palestine, right in this time, was a camel, to fit through the eye of a needle, which is essentially the smallest hole made by human beings at that time. It's easier for that to happen, for this massive animal to slip through this really tiny hole, this really tiny crack, than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. What he is saying here, literally what he is saying, is people with money can't go to heaven. That is what Jesus is saying here. If you got stuff, your stuff, that means you're not going to heaven. Now, we like to justify and kind of compare ourselves to one another. So like, well, this person has more than me, so I must be good. I think most of us would fall into this list. That we have stuff, and because we have stuff, we can't go to heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, this is uncomfortable, right? In fact, because it's uncomfortable, there have been many historical attempts to lessen what Jesus is saying here. I don't know if any of you have ever heard the, the, the camel, the eye of the needle, that the, a needle was also a small hole in a wall that a camel can't normally fit through, so Jerusalem had a wall around it. And they have, like, these needles where, like, people could go through every once in a while. Um, but you would you, they'd be sporadic throughout the wall and so that people could get in and out, but, like, they would be small so, like, armies couldn't get in, animals couldn't get in. And so the, the, I, don't, I don't know if you ever heard this, but, like, what, what, what Jesus is really saying is that it's just really hard. And that if you, if you take all the stuff off the camel that he's carrying and you, like, force him on his knees, you can, like, push a camel through the eye of the needle right? But, it, but what Jesus is saying is just really hard. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, it, it seems that the earliest historical interpretation of that, of the camel was not, is, was not a real thing, or it's like a real thing that you kind of push through a wall, didn't occur until the ninth century by, wouldn't you know it, wealthy Christians who had political power. That is the first time we know of when that interpretation came to be, because it is un- Comfortable. There is no historical basis. What Jesus is literally saying is that if you have stuff, you can't be saved. Which would cause all of us to be a little uncomfortable, would it not? It causes the disciples to be uncomfortable. And so then it says this. Jesus says, or the disciples respond in verse 26. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? That's why they said this. In their mind, nobody can be saved who can be saved? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. That's the point, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Again, here's what is so hard for for them and for us, if we're being honest. Uh, The idea is that if a good rich person can't be saved, then no one can be saved. Why? Well, if you had more stuff in the ancient world, it clearly meant that God blessed you or the gods blessed you or whatever you believed in. Like They have blessed you, so obviously that means they like you. And so if you have a lot of stuff and if you've been blessed and you have a lot of money and you can't go to heaven and the, God or the gods like you, then there's no hope for us. And if we're being honest, even as followers of Jesus, we fall into this trap. When other people have things that we don't want or we don't have, rather, that we want, it's easy for us to think, well, God loves them, More than he loves us. Well, God God loves, he's done, like we've done all these things. Why don't we get what they have? Because again, we also think more stuff means God loves you more. That's not the problem. We think the same thing. The problem then is if they can't be saved, then no one can be saved. And Jesus is saying, you're right. You can't. And so finally, they get to the right question. It's not based on what we do. How then can we say it? If it's not based on something, anything we can do, how then can we be saved? Well, you're saved. By God, Or put another way, what Jesus is teaching them here is that we are saved by what God has done for us, not by what we do for God. He is the one that makes the way. He is the one that makes it possible. Now, again, that might sound a little weird because didn't Jesus just tell this man to go do something so that he could experience the kingdom? Yes. But the reason he told this man to go do something is so that he will trust in Jesus, not his deeds and not his wealth. Following Jesus can be hard, can be difficult. He absolutely calls us to live to a certain standard. But it's not to get his love. It's in response to uh, to his love that he already has given to us so that we can experience more of his grace and so that those around us can also experience his love. The good news of the gospel is not that you bring your money and your good works and your efforts and your job and your accomplishments and your trophies to the Lord and say, God, am I good enough? The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't need all of that because you cannot impress him. The righteous, perfect, whole, powerful king of the universe is not impressed by you, he's not impressed by me, and yet he loves us. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. that Jesus lived the perfect life, that Jesus died the death that we deserved, and that Jesus defeated death on our behalf three days later, so that anyone who would trust and follow in him can, exceed, can receive and experience the grace and love of God. And this man in this text does not want to trust Jesus. That's the problem. And that is why he is missing out on the kingdom. And the good news of the gospel is that God has saved us, not ourselves. And that's why next week we're celebrating baptisms. People are saying, it's not about me and what I've done. It's about what Christ has done in my life and he has redeemed me. And I'm going to publicly share and to demonstrate publicly what Christ has done for me eternally or internally or privately. That we are saved by what God has done for us. Not what we do for God. And he is inviting us to take steps to trust in him. And then it says this, verse 28, since Peter began to tell him, so Peter, one of the leading disciples, begins to tell Jesus, he's kind of nervous about this, look, we have left everything and followed you. Like, we have done what you have said. So what's going to happen to us? <laughs> verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more. Now, at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions, I'll explain that in a second, and eternal life in the age to come. So Peter is concerned, well, if nobody can can experience your kingdom, they have to give up. We've given up a lot. So what does this mean for us? Is there any hope for us? Jesus responds by saying, "Yes, you guys, and all of all of you, all of the people who place me first, who trust in me first, will receive the kingdom of God. And in this life, you can expect, as followers of Jesus, you can expect welcome and friendship and family with other believers. That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Hopefully, New City has been has been that for you. That if you have come, that you have felt welcome and cared for and loved, and you'll experience other blessings from other believers." But you also be persecuted. I mean, his disciples are literally going to die for claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. If you follow Jesus in this life, even if we're not persecuted like they were in the first century, it's hard. You might miss out on things. People might make fun of you. Like, it can be hard to be a person of grace and love and forgiveness when people wrong you. It can definitely be hard. But what Jesus is saying, it is more than worth it. Not just in this life, but absolutely in the life to come. Where perfection and love and beauty and holiness and goodness will overflow for all time. And I'm inviting you to experience it, not because of you, but because I laid down my life for you. And if you trust in me, it is yours. It is yours. And then he says this, last verse we'll read, verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In other words, the upside-down kingdom of God, again, that those who serve and give and live in a last manner will actually be first. And those who stand on their own accomplishments will have nothing to stand on if that's what thinks, they think merits them entrance into God's kingdom. Those who give up everything and have nothing like a child and follow Jesus will be blessed in God's kingdom. And those who want to hang on to their own things because they think they have it all figured out by themselves will miss out. And that is what Jesus is saying. And so, and to to close this text, I just want to leave us with two reflections. Here's the first one. And I want to set this up as, yes, um, Jesus is talking to a man specifically about giving up his money. I don't think Jesus is saying that everyone has to give up their money in order to experience his kingdom. But because he talks about it, I think it's worth us mentioning here that how we handle our money is a direct indicator of our trust in God. How we handle our money and our finances and our assets and our resources is a direct indicator of our trust in God. So while it would be wrong to assume that everyone must give up everything in order to follow Jesus like he is asking this man to do, I think he's doing it for a particular reason, uh, in a particular situation, um, we we would be right, however, to be challenged and to consider if if I'm being faithful with what God has given me. Right, areas in my life where I, not just like, I'm not sure, but like, I know, like if I was talking to Jesus face to face, I know. I could not with a straight face say, yeah, I'm being as generous, or I'm trusting you with my finances as much as I could, right? Or put another way, should, should we, we, we should read Jesus's challenge here to the span with pause and ask, would we be willing to do that? Or what things in my life am I not willing to do that with? Because ultimately, whether it's money or anything else, here's the question to leave us with as we read this text this morning. And that is that, are there areas in my life that would look radically different if I wasn't following Jesus? Are there areas in my life, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, say, yes, I'm following Jesus, that actually would look radically different if you were no longer, if you were not following Jesus, right? The fact that you are following Jesus, does that alter your spending habits in any way? Does that alter your generosity in any way? Does that alter the type of content you consume in any way? Does that alter your schedule in any way? Now, again, to to be honest, I think for many of you, the answer is yes. I mean, you're here, uh, you generously give, you care for, I think the answer is yes. So this is not like, how dare you? This is, but what are the areas in my life that I'm not? And I know that I am not. Or am I justified in thinking because I try to be faithful in these areas of my life, I am good over here. Like, like, just to be honest, like, are there, because of your generosity, let's talk about generosity for a second, are there things in your life that you miss out on or do not have because of your generosity? I think if you read the Gospels, the answer to that question should be yes. Now that you need to live in a box, now that you have to give everything away, but if you love Jesus and you want other people to experience his grace and his mercy, then the answer to that question might be yeah, there are things in my life that if I were not generous with this money, I could do other things. Um, there are the ways that I talk to people, talk about people, uh, the ways that I spend my time, uh, the places that I go. Again, this is not being a hermit. This is not close yourself off from the world. But if I were to not, no longer follow Jesus today, would I change anything? Is there, is there anything that would be different? If the answer is no, we might not be following Jesus, or rather we might be missing out on what Jesus wants for us. Because at the end of the day, this is not about giving things up to hold you down, to make you feel oppressed, to make you miss out on life. This is about giving things up that are not good for us so that you and I can experience the greater thing. And if you're not sure the answer to this question, the good news is not this week, but next week we're doing five days of prayer and fasting. This is a great way to ask God, can you re- reveal to me just one area in my life, just one area in my life where I am not trusting you, that I can trust in you more and so that I experience more of your grace in my life. Because here's the thing, if you're not following Jesus yet, I want you to know you will have to give up something to follow Him. But what you'll receive is the kingdom instead. And if you are following Jesus, this is not just when I die and go to heaven. This is here and now, today. How can I see and experience Jesus in greater ways? Where am I not trusting Him? Where I where I could be trusting Him to experience His love and His mercy? Are there areas in my life that would look radically different if I wasn't following Jesus? This man. The answer to that question is no, because he did not want to give up what God asked him to give up. Would you and I be willing to do that for the sake of the gospel and the good of God's grace in our life? That's the question.